Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. And coming back to us on today's show are two guests that all of our listeners should be very familiar with. We have David Hudson, who's been, I think, on the podcast three times so far in 2022, maybe a record. He is, of course, the assistant professor of law at Belmont University and a Justice Robert H. Jackson legal fellow for FIRE. And then we also have Ronald Collins, should also be well familiar to many of our listeners, maybe perhaps the most frequent appearer on the podcast historically. He's a First Amendment scholar, the author of many books on free speech topics, including 2019's The People vs. Ferlinghetti, which we discussed on this show. And he is the editor of the weekly and indispensable First Amendment News newsletter. David and Ron, welcome back onto the show. Glad to be here, Nico. Thank you for uh, having us. Thank you. So Chief Justice Roberts has been the Chief Justice, John Roberts, of the Supreme Court for, what is it now, 17 years? Yes, since 2005. And I don't think we've ever on this podcast discussed his role or the significance that he plays for First Amendment, for the First Amendment. But you two have recently come out with a new law review article in the Brooklyn Law Review called The Roberts Court. It's First Amendment Free Expression Jurisprudence 2005 to 2021. And you both make the claim that no chief justice in our history has had as much influence on the law of free expression as John Roberts. You write that the Roberts Court by the end of 2021, that term, had released its 58th First Amendment ruling. And during the last two terms, that is the 2019 to 2020 and 2020 to 2021 terms, the court granted review in 12 cases that raised First Amendment free speech claims. So there might be an argument that we're even seeing more First Amendment cases now in his 17th year. David, I want to start with you and ask what led you to come up with this idea for a law review article? Had you and and Ron been thinking about this for a while? It, it's really the brilliance of, of Ronald Collins. You know, <laughs> Ron Ron is uh, is just a brilliant thinker. You know, people will, I think, people will be reading and talking about some of his work uh, long after he's departed. <laughs> And uh, it was just a hopefully not too soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that sounded bad. No, but honestly, it, it was Ron's brainchild, and I, I'm just grateful that he he put me on the team. And um, well, let me kick it over to Ron then. Like, what's the what's the inspiration? So you know, as my father used to say, um, Ron's a great guy, and he's got a lot of great ideas, and he always thinks of ways to get other people to have other people execute them. Uh, and, you know, the, the fact is, although I've written uh, a number of articles, the vast majority in books with David Scover, um, uh, you know, this article, uh, I, I went, uh, I, I betrayed my fellow author and and uh, went to, um, to a new author of somebody, David Hudson and I, we'd worked together for many years at the uh, Freedom Forum, uh, the First Amendment Center, what have you. So, you know, we were used to working together. We'd written with each other before. And I will say this, and without any uh, exaggeration or qualification, 
uh, I could not have, I could never have done this article alone. I mean, when, when it comes to decisional law, I mean, David just, he just, he has all of this stuff at his fingertips. And so, um, you know, kind, kind of combining his skills and mine, um, you know, this was a daunting project. I mean, really was, uh, and by the way, when we say First Amendment, just so we're clear for your audience, it's First Amendment speech, press, petition, assembly, not religion. So we don't, you know, get into the religion cases. And, but, you know, that alone took us 125, 560-some notes. Uh, but this- So when you say 58th First Amendment ruling, you don't mean... Religion. Right, religion, okay. No religion cases. So, um, but even then, it was a daunting case. And, I mean, daunting uh, project. And it wasn't just the cases. It was the lawyers, the arguments. I mean, you know, kind of everything. So, this is the first and most comprehensive study of the Roberts Court and its free speech record when it comes to the First Amendment uh, that has been done. And, uh, you know, it really took, I don't know, David, I, I think probably well over a, a year, you know, just of kind of going back and forth and, and checking and double checking and triple checking. And just, by the way, one shout out, the folks at the Brooklyn Law Review, and I'm no fan of law review editors. I've had my run-ins with them over the years. Uh, but these folks, these folks were really spectacular, and, and we were so impressed by them that we wrote to the dean to congratulate them. It was really they did just first rate job. Is is John Roberts? I mean, is this a conversation that's happening within the legal community about John Roberts's First Amendment, you know, jurisprudence or the 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 courts taking of so many First Amendment cases in the past seventeen years? Is or or is this something you guys noticed that was happening but going? uncommented on? Well, I'll just start and let David pick it up. Uh, I think, you know, those in the know knew that John Roberts was a player. I mean, you know, just like you knew that Anthony Kennedy was a player or you knew that, you know, uh, Hugo Black was a player or Nemo Douglas or Brennan. But when you see the numbers, that's what's shocking. David, what do you, what do you think? I agree. There have been some, I think Professor Joel Gore had written a bit on the Roberts Court free expression record. I think we cited one of his prior pieces, but I, I don't think there's been anything quite this comp, quite as comprehensive, certainly, that looked at it in, in such detail. Does he author most of these opinions? I mean, you think of Kennedy as the free, you know, the free expression guy. Well, let me just step back. If you think of the evolution of modern free speech law. So by that, I mean 20th century. Obviously it starts with Holmes and Brandeis, but they're in dissent. So they're kind of setting the stage uh, for everything. And then comes along Black, Douglas, and Brennan, who all in different ways kind of further invigorate uh, uh, the First Amendment and, and primarily with the Warren Court. Uh, and then you, you get to the Burger Court and the Rehnquist Courts. And, and then, at least with the Burger Court, it's, it's Roberts and into the, uh, I mean, excuse me, it's Anthony Kennedy. And then uh, once John Roberts comes on, it's Kennedy and Roberts. And then all of a sudden, it just, it's just John Roberts. I mean, he just has the lion's share. I mean, he writ, write more than twice as many First Amendment opinions than any of the other uh, justices. Uh, so again, think of it, the evolution, Holmes and Brandeis, Black, Douglas, Brennan, Kennedy, Roberts, and then Roberts, you know. So it, it's really significant that that evolution. What is your sense, David? I agree. I think, you know, that 
First Amendment doctrine has really become far more nuanced. And I think part of it is is that, that they're just different First Amendment claims, you know, with sort of the evolution of the viewpoint discrimination, the content discrimination principle, and various different challenges to, to different laws based on the First Amendment that it's just it's just been an environment where there are more First Amendment challenges being being made, and the and John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, certainly has, as Ron said, written a lion's share of the majority opinions. Uh, significant. It was very statistically significant. And then you know one of the things that we um, found here, Nico, and I, I may be jumping ahead. If I am, just let me know, and I'll just take a pause here. Uh, Go ahead. One of the things we found out, it's like, who are the non-players when it comes to the First Amendment and free speech? You know, who are who are the players, you know, who really don't figure in? Ginsburg, Kagan, in all the time that she's been on the court, Kagan has only written one, one majority opinion uh, in this area. Uh, Sotomayor, two, um, Ginsburg, three, Breyer, four. So, the non-players are the liberals. Um, Who has written the most dissents? Breyer. You know, I mean, well ahead. Although we were surprised to find out that Alito ranked second, but still Breyer had re- written. Uh, so at least on the Roberts Court, Alito, except for campaign finance and maybe a couple of other areas, is not a strong First Amendment advocate. But uh, when the court, when people say that the court isn't political, and, and maybe David has a different point of view on this, which is fine. Uh, it's hard to imagine because, you know, in these cases, who are the people that are non-players? Who are the people in the dissent the most often? I'm speaking in generalities now. It's the liberals. I mean, there's clearly that's the case. Um, this is your chance to dissent in part or concur in part. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I do, think. Uh, which is what we do when we write these. Things. Yeah, I think there's a great divide, too, on an issue. And maybe uh, this might be jumping ahead slightly. Um, and there's a. I think it's the Reagan versus city of Austin case that might reflect this dissonance, but there's a, there's a real divide on the court with regard to the application of the content discrimination principle. Do we take the sort of Kagan view where we predominantly look at the underlying purpose, right? Is the purpose of the law to discriminate against content or, or is it more what, Justice Thomas wrote about in Reed v. Town of Gilbert. If, if there's any facial distinction, then it then it then it's content based, and and I, and I think there is that divide uh, on the court where some justices apply the the content discrimination principle more rigorously, and some take a step back and look, maybe perhaps at what's the larger purpose. So, um, so when you say the divide, you you think that's what's animating the liberal conservative divide on the court on some of these cases? I think on some of them, yes. Um, on, on others, though, the court has... Um, but that started, yeah. in a certain sense, during the Roberts Court, right? Because you write that William Rehnquist was no big f- defender of First Amendment values as we would interpret them. Yes, course. although he did surprise people early on in 1988. He wrote the opinion in Hustler v. Falwell. And at the time, if you go back and look at the newspaper clippings, the press was extremely worried about what the new chief was going to do. And it, it turns out, and Ron uh, you know, 
may know more about this, but like I, I remember about the the notion that Rehnquist was actually a great collector of cartoons and political cartoons, so he was very moved by Rosalind Mazur's amicus brief. Um, and while he said that uh, you know the cartoons of Thomas Nast were a distant cousin of you know what uh, what Mister Flint did. Uh, with regard to Jerry Falwell, just remind our listeners what what Mr. Flint did do. <laughs> well, he uh, did a Campari liquor ad parody that said that Jerry Falwell's first time was with his mother in an outhouse. Um, and so, but it's one they of the made more a movie about that, didn't they? It's one of the more celebrated First Amendment free speech opinions, and Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote the wrote the court's opinion. So, I mean, he did have an occasional bright spot with regard to the First Amendment, but it's certainly true that his his former law clerk, I think, has surpassed him. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, the reason why that was such a surprise is because his record was disastrous on free speech. I mean, Jeffrey Stone wrote it. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing that the that the, the law clerk who was so influenced by Rehnquist, uh, John Roberts, uh, you know, is just, his views are completely antithetical to those uh, of, of Rehnquist. But, you know, going back to this liberal conservative divide, I mean, the Roberts court has never seen a campaign finance First Amendment case that it didn't like, you know. I mean, that's, you know, that's not, not a coincidence that, that this happens. Uh, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is, uh, and we talk about this, I say it occurred to me, it occurred to us, um, is, you know, you hear a lot of talk about textualism and originalism, you know, a lot of talk about that. And it's kind of like, you know, um, if you're going to be nominated these days uh, on the, by a Republican uh, president, you have to be an originalist textualist. And if you're nominated by a uh, Democrat president, you know, you're certainly not that, you're something else. But the thing is, is that that has played virtually no role um, in the free speech jurisprudence of the Roberts Court. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, you, you know, you had Hugo Black started it. Okay. And that was absolute, uh, that was textualism, originalism, uh, liberal. Um, and then you had Scalia. And Scalia, for all his talk about textualism and originalism, virtually nothing, very little in the First Amendment area. Um and then comes along Clarence Thomas, you know, a, a couple of uh, dissents from denial of cert, um, a couple of wax, and we'll talk about this in a moment uh, against uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. But the fact is, is that when it comes to originalism and textualism, let's just think about that. Congress, not the president, not the judiciary, Congress shall make no law. No, what does no mean? What does Congress mean? Abridging. Has any of these textualists ever written anything extensive on the word abridge? I mean, that's a pretty significant word. And when you think of it, originalism and textualism, except for some dissents uh, from denial of certain, a couple of other things, uh, and we can talk about uh, the uh, Morse versus Frederick case. I'll let uh, David talk about that. You know, it's virtually absent. It doesn't exist in this world. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you though, Ron, because there was something you said. Uh, you know, John Roberts hasn't seen a campaign finance case that he doesn't like. You write in them, you write in your article that for some, the Roberts Court is an exceptionally speech protective court, while for others, it is a court that has weaponized the First Amendment to serve the interests of the moneyed and powerful. You know, some of the Roberts Court's most influential opinions come in the campaign finance context, come as well in the commercial speech context. They're not the some might argue free speech cases of the past dealing with uh, 
you know, assembly and core political speech, although campaign finance, you know, of course implicates that, but it's not like the, you know, the flag burning and it's, it's cases that are a little bit different at, you're more at the, at the margins of what some people might say is like the core first amendment stuff, or am I wrong? Right. I mean, they, they have those too. You look at, uh, you know, Simon Tam's case in front of the court, you look at, uh, the, the, uh, the Phelps case. Yeah. I mean, uh, just doctrines, uh, like for example, the campaign finance case, you know, that Buckley versus Vallejo, Joel Gora for the ACLU. I mean, these began as kind of, if you will, liberal doctrine, same thing with content discrimination, which goes back, um, uh, to an opinion, a majority opinion, uh, uh, that, um, uh, uh, was written uh, by a, a liberal justice, Justice uh, Marshall. Um, and those doctrines have now kind of, if you will, crossed the uh, ideological divide and are now um, pretty much the mainstay of conservative justices. And this weaponization language you talk about comes from Justice Kagan. And it's, you know, it's how the liberals see it. David? Yeah, it's well said. I mean, I, I think how one views the Roberts Court in large part depends on what one thinks of uh, Citizens United and Progeny, right? If if you view those as uh, First Amendment victories, and the Roberts Court is certainly a very much a pro free speech court, and you could take the counter view if you if you view those as as something else. Yeah, yeah. another. Go ahead. No, I was I was going to say. I mean, but. You know, if you're kind of separating out the courts, the cases that are at the cutting edge of First Amendment law, you can say that some of the campaign finance cases are that, some of the commercial speech cases are that. But it's also, you know, they, the Roberts Court, uh, with the exception of maybe Morris v. For, you know, they've also taken on student speech cases. And, and the Mahanoy case is very much of the lineage of Tinker and some of those older courts um, in traditional free speech Approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think that case fits well within the conservative framework. I mean, it's it's, it, it's it, and the thing is, is it was a case, you know, obviously brought. We I shouldn't say obviously brought. It was argued by uh, David Cole of uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, but that was a case that really kind of pleased both parties uh, because you know uh, the ACLU was able to get in on the student speech side, but conservatives, the idea that these regulators were going to be uh, asserting the rights of, of parents off campus. This was an outrage. Uh, so it was kind of, that's one thing about First Amendment cases, you know, that sometimes, as in that case, they kind of sit on the fence, you know, and, and both parties can come along for the um, doctrinal or conceptual uh, uh, right, as it were. I want, to, I want to take a step back really quickly, Ron, and then we'll dig into some of the meat of some of the cases um, from the court. Uh, but John Roberts, before he became Chief Justice, you have a really good anecdote in here that I know I've known Bob Cornrevere for a long time. I did not know he worked with uh, John Roberts at Hogan and Hartson. But when Bob was arguing United States v. Playboy Entertainment Group before the Supreme Court, a case dealing with... Uh, the Telecommunications Act and sexual expression that John Roberts assumed the role of uh, William Rehnquist uh, during the moots uh, of that case. What was the in? Let's say you're in. You're at the uh, at the hearings. John Roberts is getting grilled before um, it's confirmed. What information would anyone have had about his First Amendment proclivities? 
before he got to the Supreme Court. Would you have seen any of what you found here in his past work? I certainly, certainly nothing significant. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating question. You know, why ride this horse? I mean, you know, some, some justices say it's going to be equal protection. Some it's going to be due process. Some it's going to be the dormant commerce clause. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you think this is his horse, the First Amendment, you know? Yeah, but I think the horse isn't just speech. I think the other side of the saddle, or the saddlebags, is religion. Uh, um, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't have seen. I don't think. I wouldn't have seen this. Uh, you know, now it is. It, it was. It, you know, when, when we talked to Bob Corn Rivera, noted first amendment lawyer, and you know, he told us about this. It was like kind of eye opening, you know, uh, but. Beside that, um, I don't think there was anything that, in fact, the fact that he clerked for Rehnquist, you probably might have just assumed the opposite, you know. David, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when he was uh, arguing some cases in the Solicitor General's office, I mean, he was was versed in First Amendment law, but I I couldn't see anything that would, would predict this, you know, that that he would be so active and take such an active role and. I mean, when you talk about active role, it's not just that as chief justice, he has written more than twice as many majority opinions, but it's also he assigns like, you know, over 95 percent of these opinions. I mean, because when he's in the majority, you know, now will that change, you know, or will his will the advent of, uh, you know, the new justices, the three Trump justices, will that buttress his power? Will it change it? I suspect it will retain it, but but that's an enormous power that he's had, uh, and, um, and 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 I hope we can get to it later. But I'll just flag it to now. Just like campaign finance was the kind of the the big ticket of the um, uh, Rehnquist court, and then into the Roberts court. I think the new the new big um, ticket item is free speech and religious freedom, and I think that's. And I suspect that John Roberts will be uh, leading the way on that as well. I mean, now I may be getting ahead of things, and, we want to, and I'm willing to hold that. But I, I just wanted to make- no. Let's uh, let's let's explore that. I mean, what ca- what leads you to that belief? Let me do what past cases. Current cases. Uh, I will echo what he says. Uh, assuming he agrees with you, Ron. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you know the the court seemingly is when we look at freedom of religion, the, the court is, is seemingly. Um, they have not quite buried lemon, but it's almost interred if we look at the American atheist case from from 2019. And then if you when you say at, when you say buried lemon, can you give our listeners some context what you're talking about? Yeah. So the there was a test called the lemon test that was created by Chief Justice Warren Berger in his opinion, Lemon v. Kurtzman in 1971. And it's a it's a three-part test. It's sometimes referred to as the purpose prong, the effects prong, and the entanglement prong. That there must be a secular purpose for the regulation. That the governmental regulation must not have a primary effect that advances or inhibits religion. And then the governmental regulation must not excessively entangle a church and state. And that was the test that the Burger Court used in establishment clause cases exclusively until Marsh versus Chambers which was a 1983 decision, and uh, I think it challenged a 107-year-old practice by the Nebraska legislature of introducing 
uh, prayer, chaplain-led prayer in the legislature, and that was challenged by Ernest Chambers, who is a very interesting man who once filed a federal lawsuit against God. <laughs> he got dismissed for uh, uh, threshold reasons, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of Lemon, and uh, Justice Antonin Scalia famously referred to it as a nightmarish ghoul that still stalks our establishment clause jurisprudence and uh, Lamb's Chapel in, in 1993, I think it was. But uh, there, there has been incredible criticism of Lemon. And so Justice Kavanaugh uh, criticized it. Justice Gorsuch criticized it. Justice Alito criticized it. Is it all on the same grounds? On what grounds? Well, they think it leads to um, uh, inconsistent results. They think that it is not rooted in history and tradition. Um, they think it leads to result-oriented decision-making. And bottom line is, I, I think that there is a, a very different vision of the Establishment Clause on the Roberts Court, and that's going to be reflected in some coming decisions. And then when we look at the other Religious Liberty Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the court is starting to breathe more vigor into that with the 2017 um, uh, Trinity de Lutheran case uh, and the Espinoza case out of Montana, where the court is really applying, and this is what Ron is talking about, the merging of the viewpoint discrimination principle and, and freedom of religion. The court is very concerned about religious entities being treated worse than non-religious entities and the vehicle by which they assert that is is now not just the free speech clause, but it's also the free exercise clause. So bottom line is, I think, you know, and we hopefully we'll be able to do something on the on the religion clauses on the robbers court eventually, if I can, um, if, if we don't have too many <laughs> projects. But uh, I, I just think I agree with Ron wholeheartedly that I think you're going to see a lot of movement in, in that area over the next decade. Yeah, I mean, so what we are seeing is the demise of the um, Establishment Clause, the rise of the Free Exercise Clause, that's on the on the religion side. And then if you move to the speech side, think about uh, bakers who design wedding cakes. Think about florists who design floral arrangements. Um, think about online web designers who uh, design websites uh, all of, in all three examples for gay couples, all right? So just think about those sorts of situations. So there you have, you know, a baker who doesn't want to, who claims a First Amendment speech and free exercise right not to make uh, designer cakes for gay couples. You have a florist who uh, on free speech and uh, free exercise grounds uh, refuses to make uh, floral arrangements for gay couples. And you have an online web designer uh, who refuses to do the same thing. Uh, by the way, uh, all of those cases uh, are brought to you by the same lawyer, Christine Wagoner. Uh, keep your eyes on that woman. Uh, we're going to see a lot of her uh, and we, in, in the Supreme Court context. And most recently, you know, the court has granted uh, a cert on um, a case called 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis. Uh, which is the online web designer case. I suspect that all of, all of these, you're going to see more and more uh, claims of free speech and free exercise in ways that undermine the equality principle in the context of uh, gay uh, and uh, uh, transgender rights. That, that's my guess.
in, in terms of where this court is going, which raises an interesting question. Uh, assuming that I'm correct uh, and the court does proceed, and I think the, the test, and I'm going to let David uh, tease this out, but the t- test that the court used in the Masterpiece cake, uh, case, I don't think that test is going to survive. I think they're going to have a much more stringent and categorical test. But be that. What was the test in that case? Well, I, I want to let David get to that in a second because I just want to make one more point. Because if you heard, if you just heard what David said the last time uh, in this previous answer, he did everything but give us the case citations. And and if you ask him mm-hmm. that, he could give those too. <laughs> His familiarity with doctrine is incredible. Oh, I'm well aware. Yeah. yeah. But what I was about to say is. Uh, if I'm correct and that, that, that the new uh, ticket to ride is free speech and religious freedom, if that's true, imagine a situation where somebody owns an Airbnb and they advertise that they will not rent to gay couples. They just advertise that, you know, gay couples we will not rent to. Now, that's a speech site. I'm not talking about the conduct, all right? I'm just talking about the speech, all right? Um, would that so so they would actually when you say conduct they would actually rent it they just advertise that they wouldn't yeah i mean you know conduct is another matter but if, if because because the difference between the the flowers and the bakers and the and the candlestick makers you know um, uh, and the uh, designers yeah. is that you know there's the argument being that there's some sort of artistic element right, right. that goes into it right but but still it's you know you 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 in the way that there isn't when you're renting out well also home. that they're being compelled so i mean you know, this is a pure speech case you know you put on your website uh, your airbnb you're not going to rent to gay couples, you know, and I'm just talking about the speech. I'm not talking about the inflammation. And if, if somebody were to challenge uh, that against an anti-discrimination statute, because you got to get the, you know, the the state action involved. So there's an anti-discrimination statute. I don't know that that wouldn't be protected if if I'm right about how the court goes in this 303 Creative uh, versus Alanis case. Uh, then I don't think that would be. Uh, I think it would be subject to a First Amendment challenge. I mean, David, and and, and get back to the test that that we were talking about. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I fear that that may be correct. You know, and I, masterpiece. I I view that as a as a case where the court sort of ducked a lot of the underlying issues because of the just overt religious hostility by the local Colorado Commission against. Uh, I guess it was Jack Phillips. I mean that's what the court sort of put their hat on was the, was the religious hostility against him. And I don't, I didn't glean many larger principles out of masterpiece. And I think that's why the court is, is, uh, has taken this most recent case uh, to try to, to try to flesh, to flesh a lot of this out. Yeah. So when you say it, you make a couple of questions in your law review article that I kind of want to go through systematically, you ask, how has the Roberts Court wielded its constitutional power in the First Amendment arena? Would you say this kind of line of cases or this line of issues that you're seeing moving forward or that you anticipate seeing forward is one of the ways it's wielded its constitutional power in the past? Or is this kind of a new direction for the court? I think it, I think it may be a new direction. Because of the new makeup of the court? I, I think so. The, the court, the court's composition, you know, a lot of it's luck of history, right? What President Carter didn't have any Supreme Court appointments, but uh, President Trump had three um, sort of accidents of history on, on, on court composition. I, I think that 
Ron has got his finger on the pulse that, that this is going to be an area. But I, I think taking a step back of of areas where the Roberts Court, I guess, is not protective is when sometimes we view the government not as sovereign, but the government as employer, uh, the governor as the government as warden, or the, the government as uh, educator, although Mahanoy was a nice exception to that. I, I think one of the, the great blots on the Roberts Court free speech record is uh, Garcetti versus Ceballos. 2006, where just and I think it's a blot on Justice Kennedy's free speech record. Um, that's the case where Kennedy creates a new categorical rule, um, or he said when public employees make statements pursuant to their official job duties, the Constitution doesn't insulate them from discipline. Basically, if a public employee speaks pursuant to his or her official job duties, there is zero First Amendment protection. Doesn't matter how important the speech is. Doesn't matter if it's the purest of whistleblowers. Doesn't matter if the employee is contributing to the marketplace of ideas. Doesn't matter if the employee is incredibly sympathetic or, or you know, the speech is incredibly valuable. But they punted right on, on categorical rule. They punted on horrible. college faculty, right? Well, there are two circuits that have, have not applied Garcetti, at least two that have not applied Garcetti to maybe three now. But was it Garcetti? Was it Garcetti where they had in the footnote that said, you know, we don't reach the question of how this applies to. Yes. Because uh, justice Souter in his dissenting opinion said, wait a second, does this apply to university faculty when they're involved in scholarship and teaching? And Kennedy just ducked that. Um, But Garcetti is just an awful opinion. I think now the court cut back on that and Lane B. Franks, in 2014, I think it was in Sotomayor, actually, or one bright spot where she she wrote that opinion where a public employee who testified truthfully in court got subpoenaed and, and court testimony was not a regular part of the employee's duty that she created an exception to that and kind of rooted us back to Pickering v. Board of Education, which is kind of the tinker of public employee free speech rights. But but I view that as a, a very is a situation where the Roberts court is not very protective of speech. So we had a symposium that, that Ron also, uh, I guess, well, Ron, I think got everybody, uh, all these luminaries to come in. There was a symposium at Brooklyn. I was the only nobody there. <laughs> and and um, we're, I guess we were by zoom, but uh, I think Erwin uh, Shemarinsky was, was one of the individuals that, that Ron got to come speak. And, uh, and, Professor Dean Shemarinsky is very critical of the Roberts Court uh, and its free speech record, I think primarily because of some of these cases like Garcetti, where, where, the, the, where the Roberts Court emphasizes the governmental power to control. And that, to, to me, I, I agree with that part of it. I, I don't like the Garcetti decision but, at all. You know, if you wanted to see a flip, I mean, uh, um, when it comes, you're a government employee, you know, you're speaking, you know, and, and what are your free speech rights? And as David has just pointed out, they're virtually none, right? But imagine this. What if the government employee was expressing a religious view? What if you put that, you know, uh, uh, in the blend? I suspect you may well get a different result. It wouldn't surprise me if you did, you know. 
and, and, I, and I think it just goes to show, you know, that even the most categorical of doctrines can be fluid in a, in a, in a right context. By the way, I think another important area, and it's just going to happen, I think it has less to do with ideology than just the world uh, as it's evolving. But we're going to see more and more cases. Uh, we're starting to see some of them, uh, Paul Clement rep- representing Facebook uh, and others, um, involving the new tech, uh, new communications technologies. I mean, I think we're going to see definitely a whole line of, of cases there. I mean, right now, almost 10% of all stories written by Associated Press are done by algorithms. You know, and so the question is, is when you have that sort of thing, when you when you talk to your, you know, when you say you talk to your phone, right, and just say Siri or Alexa, or you talk in your, your car, you know, is that communication, you know, is it governed by the First Amendment? Uh, how do you determine those cases? You know, I think we're going to see a lot more. And we've also seen the whole social platforms, you know, when you have the president uh, using a social platform to communicate uh, official um, uh, uh, communications, you know, what happens to the state action doctrine? Now, we saw the state, the Second Circuit, in, in that case involving Donald Trump, uh, ruling that, that, that there was state action, and it is governed by the First Amendment. The Supreme Court, uh, that case was mooted out. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more social media, modern uh, communications technology. It just has to happen because, one, one last thing, it, the relationship between free speech and the mode of communication is essential. And let me give you one example. When the drafters wrote the First Amendment and they talked about the press, they didn't mean, and I'm here to draw it on a Pennsylvania Law Review article by Eugene Bollock, they didn't mean the, the press as an institution. They meant the press as a technology. It was that technology that made the Protestant Reformation possible. You know, so new moves. Another example, you have Miller versus California obscenity. Is obscenity protected by the First Amendment? Well, every law student can tell you that. No. Well, that's half true, because with the advent of the of 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 the Internet as a functional matter, obscenity became legalized, except for kiddie porn. There's more obscenity now than ever before in the history of this country. And yet so it just shows how technology can, if you will, override the doctrine. And I think in the area of sexual expression, that's just a wonderful example. So I think we're going to see more, a lot more of this. You know, one thing I just thought that Ron's um, great comments. You guys are patting each other on the back too much. You guys need to, I want to see some criticism here. (laughs) Well, but no, but I've never thought, I've never bridged these two together with regard to new communications, but Chief Justice Roberts has also been at the forefront of the cell phone Fourth Amendment cases. He, he wrote the court's uh, main opinion in Riley v. California, which is a 2013 decision that essentially says before the police can search a cell phone, they have to get a warrant. And I actually have wrote, that on my as a background on my cell phone. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> get a warrant, Riley v. California. Yeah. <laughs> and he, also, he also wrote the Carpenter case from eight. I think from 2018, which is another cell phone case. Like, so he's been protective, it, it, at least in the Fourth Amendment, with regard to digital communication. But I, I've never ever thought about those two together. What's your before. next article, David? What cases? Uh, so we've talked a little bit about 
just very little bit, and maybe it's worth revisiting uh, Citizens United. We've talked about Garcetti. What are some Mahanoy a little bit? What do you, what David, what do you think are the two most important First Amendment cases from the Roberts Court? And what do those cases tell you about how it wields its constitutional power in that area? Uh, oh, boy. I mean, I, I, we probably all have to, I'm assuming both of you were going to say Citizens United. Yeah, so maybe we just, maybe we just put that aside. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I think there's, Why? there's a bigger one and it, it's just not as sexy. Uh, and it has to do with what is the predecessor to city of Austin versus Reagan national advertising. Oh yeah. Reed v. Town of Gilbert. What Adam Liptak identifies as the sleeper case. Yeah. Yeah. Reed v. Town of Gilbert takes us back. It was a 2015 decision that focused on a, a town in Arizona that had, uh, that treated signs differently, whether they were political signs or temporary directional signs or ideological signs. And the court unanimously invalidated the Arizona law because it was full of content distinctions. But that's where you have that divide on the court. Justice Clarence Thomas writes the opinion where he said, look, if it's facially content based, it's content based, even if the underlying purpose isn't to discriminate or against the view, uh, the underlying content, I suppose. And then Kagan uh, writes the uh, uh, concurring opinion. And, and that's where I think that we, we have to have some uh, fleshing out of how exactly are we going to apply the, the content discrimination principle? Are we going to take the Thomas view or are we going to take the Kagan view? You know, so, I mean, campaign, when, you know, campaign finance, you know, gets a lot of attention, but, it, but it is in many respects and, Bob Cornbeer, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying all respects, but in many respects, it's cabined. It pertains to a particular type of speech. Yes, it has spillover effects that affect other areas of speech, but it's in good part cabined to a particular type of speech. Content discrimination applies across the board. So its potential, its potential reach is substantially greater. So if you asked me what was the most important one, I would probably have to, I, you know, I might want to revisit it, but I'd say probably the Reed case uh, and, and particularly what we're going to see in city of Austin versus Reagan national advertising. I think that that sleeper cases, as Adam Liptak referred to it, could be and, and may well prove to be uh, the most important and long lasting uh, and broadly applied doctrine of the Roberts court. Well, what are some, I mean, how could, that have a significant effect on the first, like what are the hypotheticals or implications that could come from taking either the Roberts or the Kagan view, David? Well, if you take the Thomas view or the Thomas view, excuse me. Yeah. If you take the Thomas view, I mean, there are all sorts of laws that have content distinctions. You know, that's why it was Alito that wrote or warned that we're going to turn the court into the veritable signboard review. <laughs> I mean, almost anything has content distinctions. So, I mean, there is speech. This- what is unprotected speech other than content, right? I mean, you say certain areas of speech are protected, others aren't. Well, that's content. I mean, every time you make, I mean, if every single decision that had to do uh, with content discrimination 
was unconstitutional uh, and abridged the First Amendment, I mean, my God, the First Amendment could apply to everything. I mean, this is this is a horse that would never stop running. And I think, you know, as, as David said, the real challenge is, is where do you draw the line? You know? Yeah, I mean, we go back and it, it was Justice Marshall. I think Ron already mentioned this. It was it Justice Marshall? Marshall in Chicago Police Department versus City of Mosley. Above all else, the First Amendment means the government may not restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, its content. But do we take that literally? Well, Justice Thomas has, has taken that quite literally and has applied, applies that with, with a lot of vigor. Now, Thomas also, um, now this is an Arenquist Court decision back in 44 Liquor Mart v. Rhode Island in 96. He wrote a concurring opinion where he essentially says, we need to end this second-class treatment of commercial speech, a subject that you know, Ron has written about for decades, but I, I, uh, I, I think that in certain areas, you know, in certain areas, Justice Clarence Thomas is uh, a very forceful advocate for the First Amendment, and then in other areas, you know, he want he wants to overrule Tinker. Yeah, I mean, the irony with Thomas is, I mean, Sullivan. Yeah. The, the irony with Thomas, Justice Thomas, is on the one hand, he may be the author or authors of the most significant First Amendment opinions in the area of speech of the Roberts Court. On the other hand, contrary to what is often said, our study proves that he's not really a reliable and consistent defender of free speech principles. So, you know, they have this kind of, you know, uh, dichotomy. I mean, who was the most reliable? Uh, you know, I say was, you know, because it could be a past justice um, or is, you know, is, is it Roberts or was it Kennedy? Well, certainly Roberts's record is more speech protective than than Kennedy's. You know, if you go back, I mean, you know, when you have people like William o. Douglas, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, Douglas is going to be a hard one to to beat. I mean, uh, Hugo Black started out with a great record, and then it kind of went south you know, toward the end of his career. Uh, of course, there was Brennan, but. Um, but it's hard to imagine anybody with a more protective and consistent, not necessarily influential, um, uh, free speech record than William O. Douglas. Would you agree? Or is I agree. I agree. And Justice Thurgood Marshall doesn't get much credit, but he had a very consistent record in free speech cases. But I definitely agree with Ron. i tell you something else that's interesting that in doing this study, I had written this down as, as something that hopefully uh, – talk about is, is Justice Alito and the government speech doctrine. Justice Alito writes uh, Pleasant Grove versus Summum, which is the case from 2009 where the city in Utah has a Ten Commandments monument in the public park, but they're not willing to place a monument of the seven aphorisms of Summum, and Justice Alito explains that that's government speech. But then he writes a very strong dissent six years later in um, Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans, where he says that specialty license plates are not government speech. The majority said that they were. And he said, well, look, if a reasonable observer sees a vehicle with a specialty license plate, he associates it more with the driver or owner of the vehicle than with the state. And then it was Alito that also wrote very significantly in the TAM case where he says, look, uh, we've got to be very careful about applying this government speech doctrine because it could, could 
take a capacious bite out of the First Amendment, right? That it has to be narrowly cabined. And so I think that even though Alito had, had you know, at times what he was a lone dissent in Snyder v. Phelps, and maybe Stevens as well, like, uh, but I mean, he, his relationship with the government speech doctrine is very interesting. And there is a government speech doctrine on the court's docket, the, the Shirtlift versus City of Boston case. Uh, and so to me, it'll be very interesting to see if Justice Alito uh, continues to take an active role when it comes to when is something government speech. And for the listeners, this is so important for First Amendment jurisprudence, because if something is deemed government speech, there's no First Amendment challenge that if, that ends the First Amendment challenge. And um, that 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 that's sort of an interesting play. I think another area too. I wanted to mention this because I've I've been on the show with Nico about true threats. That's a doctrine that desperately needs clarification from the court. Um, and I would hope, particularly with the advent of you know online threats, I, I think that that's something to to look for too. Is is um, we we need clarification from the Supreme Court on that doctrine. Speaking of the Supreme Court, um, and uh, I've been saying this for years to students, um, you know, the First Amendment isn't simply about what the Supreme Court does. Uh, the Supreme Court is about the culture of free speech. And let me give you an example of that. Perhaps the biggest free speech issue, the one that comes up more often than all the rest combined, more than campaign finance, more than sexual expression, more than government speech, is college campus free speech, right? Has the Supreme Court, I mean, there's been hundreds of cases, all right? involving that. There's been a number of situations uh, where there was a threat and then the threat was contested uh, and it didn't go to court. Um, and uh, uh, FIRE, Foundation for the Individual Rights in Education, um, and, you know, I get to say what I want, <laughs> whether or not I start a fire or I put one out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and they really, I mean, that area of the law has been shaped first and foremost by FIRE without really any meaningful intervention by the Supreme Court. In fact... Yeah, we've never been to the Supreme Court. Right. Well, that's because you keep winning, right? You know. Yeah, it's a problem, and, yeah, and, in a certain sense. I, I think, by the way, David, this is, you know, this is another area for a, a great war of you article because this jurisprudence has been determined, I was going to say largely, entirely by lower courts and litigators like Fire and Bob Corner Beer uh, and others litigating these cases. That body of law... And what is happening in terms of regulation of speech on college campuses is not being defined uh, by the Supreme Court. I think that's fairly significant. Yeah, I agree. Are there any other cases that you think, you know, before we wrap up here from the Roberts Court that you think are worth highlighting that we haven't covered yet as being significant or a place where the court has demonstrated that it's pretty hostile to certain First Amendment claims, I mean, we're, we we've spoken about Garcetti already and the employee speech doctrine. I, when it comes to national security cases, I I don't know what to make of the court. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to bring um, uh, for, for that fact to the matter. Free speech is defined a lot about by the by the culture, and I think as we see now more and more. 
um, uh, speech about uh, by government officials and by public figures where there are blatant falsehoods, I think, you know, that may cause the court to reevaluate either the public's, I, I, I don't think they'll reevaluate uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, but I do think they may revisit uh, the uh, public figure uh, doctrine in the context of defamation. I can see that happening. And here, uh, it's an area where I think both liberals and conservatives would might well want the court to do that. What, what, is, what is your sense of that, David? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, um, I'm trying to think of any, you know, there's one other area they haven't d- talked about it in a while, but uh, prisoner rights, <laughs> it's not a court that's very sensitive to prisoner rights. I mentioned that because if, if you look, if you do weekly searches on the first amendment, by far the, the most number of first amendment lawsuits are, are filed by prisoners. And this is an area where, going back to what Ron said earlier, Justice Marshall, Justice Thurgood Marshall was a justice that would actually look closely at free speech claims by prisoners. His uh, concurring opinion in Procuniavia Martinez is is just beautiful, where he talks about the human spirit and, and whatnot. And there, there is nobody on the, on the current court that I've seen that seems to be sensitive at all uh, to prisoner uh, free speech claims. Uh, well, Mar- uh, just, uh, just, Justice Marshall had a uh, like a defense background, right? So it might suggest that. Yeah, he certainly was a criminal defense attorney in, in certain cases uh, very effectively. Uh, and um, I, I don't see that. I mean, I guess Beard v. Banks was the decision. is way back in the early years of the Roberts Court, I think in 2006. But the court was not protective at all there. Well, for, if she's confirmed, you know, you might have Katanji Brown Jackson with her background as a public defender who might be more inclined to consider First Amendment claims on behalf of prisoners. I mean, I, I think it's worth briefly discussing as we close out here what, if anything, we can say about Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, thoughts or opinions on the First Amendment. Uh, cases, if she has any, well, and David, how that might shape the court. David Keating over at the Free Speech Institute, uh, and I refer people to it, has just done a study of, of her very, very, and understandably limited uh, uh, work in this area. And, uh, and they say with some hesitation, and it's entirely understandable that they would be hesitant because there's so few cases and there's no really extended decisions but that's that's really the case with the last three justices too right gorsuch kavanaugh and uh coney barrett uh, there wasn't much to kind of suggest how they might come down on some of these cases at least the speech cases i think justice gorsuch is going to prove to be a first amendment force in the in the future i you know he's a he's got a very interesting writing style he's able to inject a lot of style and flair in his writing while also maintaining his clarity, which is an exceedingly difficult thing to do. But he's starting to be a force, I think. You know, if you look at a, a couple of free exercise opinions, some of his concurring opinions, uh, one of his opinions in the retali- retaliatory arrest case. Uh, uh, I, 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 I view, I, I think that he is going to contribute quite mightily um, in the coming decades. That's, that's a prediction I'm making. But Ron, you say there's really nothing we can say definitively about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Well, so far, from what little we know, she seems sympathetic to free speech principles. But the the, the <laughs> words are 
as little as given little, little yeah. you know. Uh, and so, in fact, you know, like we were talking about John Roberts earlier. I mean, you know, could you have seen anything, uh, you know, I mean, for exactly for, for that matter, who would have ever seen Hugo Black? I mean, you know, who would have seen that train coming? I mean, you know, just like nobody. Uh, so, you know, there are uh, uh, situations. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I don't know. But in terms of her free speech record, uh, the current nominee uh, doesn't have to do much to beat Justice Breyer's free speech record. <laughs> yeah, the court, in a certain sense, according to your guys' analysis, lost its uh, most uh, hostile member uh, when it comes to First Amendment issues, right? You, you, you know, you never can predict. I, I I don't know his record. I haven't studied it. But uh, Justice Harlan II? Yeah. I mean, what's what's a, one of the greatest First Amendment opinions of all time? Cohen v. California. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote that. He's kind of a kind of a conservative on the Warren Court for many years, right? Judicial restraint. That is, is a beautiful a First Amendment opinion. So you just never know, right? Yeah. I mean, but it, it wasn't there the story when the court used to, and I, I, I don't, I, I think I recall reading this. Maybe it was in the Brethren uh, when the court used to have the obscenity cases, and they'd go in the basement and watch them, uh, and Hugo Black wouldn't go because he thought it was protected. And at that time, uh, at one point, Harlan's eyes were failing. And so one of the other justices would kind of tell him, give him a kind of a blow by blow description. Um, and he would say, kind of the way he spoke, although he was born in the United States, he, had, he would say, extraordinary, extraordinary, you know, so uh, they don't watch those films in the basement anymore. Yeah. Hey, is that a good tie-in to do the show on sexual expression? Yeah, coming soon. <laughs> coming soon, the justice is in the basement of the Supreme Court yeah. watching porn, uh, whatever. You know, that, uh, that would make a great Lenny Bruce routine, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, he could really, he could really, you know, uh, uh, go to town with that, and then. So. Well, I think we're going to leave it there, guys. We're at an hour. Uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. John Roberts is what, 67? So there's a good chance we've got, you know, another decade or two, uh, uh, of him as the, uh, the chief justice left. So but you um, never 17. know when Fortuna knocks on your door, you never yes. know whether or not to answer it because she may be there to give you good news and she may be there with a dagger ready to stab you in the heart. So you never know. I mean, I remember waking up and seeing the Scalia news, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you just, you know, you just, never, you know, you, you never know. But uh, he's, a, he's a relatively young man. He's 67. So yeah. um, the math, the actuarial math would suggest we have uh, – more years yet from John Roberts. So I appreciate you guys doing this. I learned a lot uh, from your Brooklyn Law Review article. Again, the, the article is the Roberts Court. It's First Amendment, Free Expression, Jurisprudence, 2005 to 2021. Ron, Dave, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. David, always good to be with you. Yes, Ron. Thank you so much. A reminder that David is an assistant professor of law at Belmont University and a Justice Robert H. Jackson legal fellow for FIRE. And Ron is a First Amendment scholar, the author of many, many books and many law review articles as well. And he's the editor of the weekly and indispensable First Amendment news newsletter, which you can subscribe to on FIRE's website, thefire.org. It comes into your inbox 
every week and gives you the play-by-play of what's happening in the First Amendment community. This podcast, as you all know, is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my indispensable as well colleague, Aaron Reese. Uh, you can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter, twitter.com slash free speech talk, or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take feedback, if you have any, at so to speak at the fire.org. Again, that's so to speak at the fire.org. We also take reviews, the best way to get new listeners to our show. I appreciate anyone who leaves a review. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening, and I thank David and Ron for coming back on the show. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>